The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we want to congratulate Ian on the success of his book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, which has nearly sold 200,000 copies. That's right, 200,000 copies. If you haven't read this book yet, definitely grab yourself a copy, and you can get one at Amazon, iTunes, or wherever your local books are sold. So well done, Ian. Way to go. And today we have The Liturgist from the wildly popular The Liturgist podcast featuring author, podcaster, and speaker Science Mike McCarg and the Grammy-nominated artist, composer, and author Michael Gunger. Both Mike and Michael are well-versed in the Enneagram, so you're in for a real treat. Also, we've got another giveaway. Woo-hoo! If you have been listening to this podcast for a while, you may be familiar with the name Lee C. Camp, and Enneagram One, by the way. Lee is a Lipscomb theology professor and creator of the Nashville-based Tokens Show. Tokens is a live variety show held three or four times yearly here in Nashville and tells stories through song and word that gives us tangible tools for sowing seeds of justice, peace, and beauty in our world. Tokens has welcomed guests like Michael Gunger, Ashley Cleveland, Sandra McCracken, Matthew Perryman-Jones, our very own Ian Cron, and uh, many more esteemed musicians, authors, and thought leaders. The house band is crazy, I'm telling you. Um, Several friends of mine are in the house band. Buddy Green, Jeff Taylor, Odessa Settles, and I'm telling you, every person in this band is stellar, and it's got to be one of the best house bands you will ever hear in your life. I kid you not. Um, anyway, I've had the pleasure of going. Uh, let me tell you, it's a show you won't want to miss. And Lee has given Typology listeners a chance to come to the annual Thanksgiving show at the Ryman, which is my favorite token show, favorite place to see it, on November 18th. And we have, at Typology, a handful of tickets ready to give away to you If you're not in Nashville, maybe a weekend trip to see this fair city might be exactly what your Thanksgiving break needs. So, um, And if you live here, you're probably very familiar with tokens. So if you, this is how you get a ticket. If you shoot out a tweet or if you post on Instagram, letting the world know that you love and or listen to Typology Podcast and throw in there a hashtag token show, which is T-O-K-E-N-S. S-H-O-W, Tokens Show, then we'll put your name in a hat, we'll draw out the winners, and our very own Wendy will touch base with you and present you with free tickets to the Tokens Show at the Ryman on November 18. So here's how you get your name drawn from that hat. If you shoot out a tweet or post on Instagram letting the world know that you love and or listen to Typology Podcast, that's at T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at Typology Podcast, and throw in the hashtag 
Token Show. That's hashtag T-O-K-E-N-S-S-H-O-W. Hashtag Token Show. Then we'll put your name in the hat. We'll draw the winners out of the hat. And our very own Wendy will touch base with you and present you with free tickets to the Token Show at the Ryman Auditorium on November 18th. So do that and we'll get you some tickets. That'll be a fun time for you. It'll make your Thanksgiving. So make sure you do that. So let's get on with the show now so you can hear Ian and his interview with the liturgist from the liturgist podcast. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Hey, Science Mike McCarg, Michael Gunger, the liturgists, as you are known together, welcome to Typology. Thank you. It's good to be here. I, uh, I want to jump in with something actually right away. I don't even want to, you know, I've already introduced you at the front end of the show, and I actually want to jump in on something that I heard on a podcast of yours a couple of days ago. The two of you are both, you know, Enneagram students. Uh, you are using it in your work. Um, you've got a video course now about the Enneagram, navigating your, what is it called, navigating your way? Is that... Oh, heck. We made those titles up in four minutes. I think it's basically that course. That course is about using the Enneagram to navigate faith transition. Navigating so, faith whatever transition. Whatever we called it, I don't know. Finding your way. That sounds familiar. Finding, <laughs> familiar to me. Man. Yeah, I think it is finding your way. Wow. You, I don't know. You guys ought to be in marketing. You're really killing it. <laughs> it's good, though. Yeah. The content's really good. We're just not really into titles. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're... If, if, you, if you look at our podcast, we tend to pick one or two words about the topic, and then that's the name of the podcast. So we're doing a show on masculinity. The show is called Man. We did a show on feminism. We called it Woman. So, I mean, we're just titled geniuses. Yes, yeah. Maybe uh, w- w- that's referred to as having a keen sense of the obvious. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, very, that's very, that's we very good. Well, I mean, here's the thing about you guys. You've created this global community and helping people who have felt estranged and um, maybe the word might be uh, alienated from their faith tradition have found themselves meandering down paths that were not perhaps acceptable to their, their spiritual world, uh, and have felt, you know, kind of, uh, outliers in the spiritual sense. Right. And it's a wonderful, wonderful community for those of you who have not listened to the liturgist podcast. I can't commend it enough to you. Um, but one of the things that you've been doing, and I love what you're doing with the Enneagram, you know, you're, you've created this, um, this video series called Finding Your Way. Can I just remind you of what it's called? It's called, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's called Finding Your Way, Navigating Deconstruction and Spiritual Formation with the Enneagram. All right. Now. Oh, that's good. That's good, isn't it? Yeah. I actually just wrote I it for you. Because it's more than one word long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could have just called it Finding yeah. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. Yeah. All right. All right. So first of all, t- tell me what you mean when you say navigating deconstruction. I think you have an idea. I mean, you know, clearly you have an idea. I have an I know where you're going with it, but perhaps a lot of our listeners don't. So what does that mean? Navigating deconstruction and spiritual formation with the Enneagram. What does that mean? For us, when we talk about deconstruction, um, we usually use it in the context of starting to ask questions about your faith and kind of pull it apart. 
and look at why do I believe X, Y, and Z? Um, and a lot, we just know, we went through that personally growing up in a pretty strict evangelical background, both of us. Um, and through the years, as we learned about science or whatever, and you see, oh, is the world really only 6,000 years old? Or do we really have to think that gay people are an abomination to God? Like, is it, does all this just go together? Can I love Jesus and not think that? Um, that's the kind of work of deconstruction where you really start, why do I believe all these things? Why do I think that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Any, any of those big questions. Uh, there's just so many people that are going through that. And when we went through it, we felt very alone in that and often without guide and without companionship. And that's a big part of the reason we started the liturgists in the first place is to be a companion to people that are at different places on the road that sometimes they feel alone. Hmm. On. And so, so then you have this new hotness in the Enneagram, which at first I was like super skeptical of, <laughs> uh, because I tend to post deconstruction, especially place all my trust in things that have great empirical validation in the form of double blind peer reviewed studies with control groups. And there's not a ton of that research out there for the Enneagram, but when people kind of get to the bottom of the <laughs> the deconstruction shoot, so to speak, if we were to talk about the ch- children's game, shoots and ladders, they'll figure out, wow, I've talked myself out of literally everything. I, I don't even think I believe science and, and, and skepticism at this point. And there becomes a psychologically necessary process of forming some kind of belief and some kind of identity especially because we're social animals and we have a need to live in community. And so what I appreciate so much about the Enneagram is how dynamic it is, that it doesn't just type people using four letters, for example, like Myers-Briggs or something static, but it shows how stress affects you. It shows passive pursuing growth. And so we thought, is there a way to take this model um, that's very useful for exploring personality and creating shared language around personality and use it to help people start to create a new spirituality for themselves and, and have a capacity to exist in spiritual community with others without being prescriptive. Because we didn't want to make a course that was for some denomination of Christians or, all, or just Christians in general. A huge part of our audience identifies as non-religious or spiritual not religious uh, or as actual atheists. So we wanted to make a, a tool that was useful for people, regardless of their current spiritual standing, to rebuild some kind of belief system and communal involvement without saying what that system had to be. And and for somebody as a five who tended to think of my own deconstruction and faith journey as dealing with objective truths and like just trying to come up with the cleanest worldview that was the most true and not having any idea that there was like ego stuff involved in that process. The Enneagram, when I came across it was very helpful for me kind of seeing that there was helping me see the observers, help me see the seer, the one that was doing the processing, the one that was trying to come up with the objective truth and seeing, Oh, all this is happening for a reason. These questions are so weighty for me for a reason. Um, it's not like it's just out there begging to be solved. Like in it's, it's not the objective 
thing's problem. It's this is my issue. This is something that's happening in me. And so the Enneagram for me was very helpful in kind of parsing the difference between um, objective and subjective mm. and, and seeing how my ego gets involved in what I think those things are. And Mike, uh, Mike, you're a nine. You got Michael, who's a five. You're a nine, right? Um, That's correct. And I've had you on the show before. It was one of our more popular shows. You were so beautifully um, transparent and uh, articulate about your own just personal journey, which is so helpful to people. What's it like for, I mean, you guys are closest to friends. Tell me about a five and nine relationship. What's a friendship like between you two? Oh, it's a, it's an ideal uh, friendship for a five and a nine because neither of us ever make any requests or requirements of the other <laughs> at any point. <laughs> so you never have to worry, like, is someone going to push boundaries here? Is someone going to try to rush to intimacy too quickly? Um, you know, it, it's... Uh, I don't know. Michael is, is my closest and dearest friend. Um, and... How many times do you think we've hugged? <laughs> Ever. Total. Do you think it's 20? Uh, probably. 25? Yeah, somewhere. It's there. somewhere in that range. <laughs> and we've been friends for multiple orbits of the sun, of the earth around the sun. Um, and like, I know it's really early. Uh, we don't tend to greet each other or say goodbye. We tend to <laughs> enter into a common space immediately enter into the most intense esoteric conversation <laughs> topics possible. And when both of us feel like that's concluded, we simply depart without further comment. <laughs> and uh, I think in a lot of ways, we nines, we spend so much energy like setting up a personality or an interface that will be comfortable or palatable to someone else. But if you're kind of a, a wonky or a, a brainy nine, a five won't make you put on any kind of personality artifice. They're fine if you just need to talk about something substantive um, and then roll out. And, and, and we nines aren't the best about calling people and reaching out to people because that requires energy and initiative. Uh, it's much easier for us to get into a space and physically merge. But that's like <laughs> an ideal friend for a five that's like, I, you know, I don't, I don't need to bother you a lot. Like, we'll just have our thing. We have our thing. But then when you're off, like, if you need, if you're a five, if Michael needs to go into his ivory tower, I'm like, great, I can veg indefinitely. <laughs> so, so my question is, is this the first time you, either of you have ever spoken to each other in the last six months? Because you, you <laughs> if, if neither initiates, like, how does it, how do you ever see each other? Yeah, that that would be that's the risk. That is the risk. And there's been like probably seasons where we've gone a lot while without talking. But um, without animosity or hurt feelings. Yeah, no no animosity or hurt feelings. The but the tendency would be to drift, I think in a normal 5 to 9 relationship. But I think we just like each other. I I reach out to him which I don't really reach out to people. Hmm. Um, like Ian, I really like you. I, every time I hang out with you, I really like you. How often do I call you? <laughs> when you need a room in when you need a room in my house. <laughs> so, 
that that actually requires a little explanation. Yeah. Would you like to give the explanation for that remark of mine? About you when you go into your house? I mean, you you in my mind, you kept telling me to come to your house. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, I got to tell the backstory. They need a little backstory here. Okay, so one night, one night, I think it was like eight or nine o'clock at night. I'm I'm here in Nashville, and my phone rings. Right, my cell phone's. And I pick it up and. You know, typical five, there's always five seconds between the pickup and the actual first line. And, and, and I hear this, hey, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's Michael and Gunger. I'm, I'm at the airport and I'm here to, I'm doing a gig at the Ryman tomorrow night. And I just realized when I got here, I don't, I don't, I don't think they got me a hotel room or anything. I, I don't think I have anywhere to stay. <laughs> and I was like, seriously, like you're coming into town to do a show and, you don't have like a piece of paper, like with your contact person or where you're going or what you're doing, or if you've got a car or whatever. And he says, no, I don't, I can't find one. So can I just stay at your place? <laughs> and sure enough, that night you came and stayed at my house and, um, we stayed up till four in the morning laughing and making my wife irate. <laughs> yeah. She's a nine. Yes. She's a nine. And, and I yeah. saw nine anger. Yeah. That's, terrifying so Um, i've been i've been married for 30 years well i've been married 30 years it's the only time i've seen my wife angry just so you know uh was with you (laughs) we were up late yep laughing and it was loud and it was in the cottage and wasn't a lot of room for being away from the noise no no there wasn't um but you should know like that's not something that i do which any fives in the audience would probably relate to I don't ask people to stay at their houses. I only asked you that because you had in the past said you should come stay with me and I wanted to see you. The last thing, I I never stay at people's houses. <laughs> I will take a hotel every 10 times out of 10. I'm uh, with- well, 9.99. <laughs> um, but I... <laughs> All right. Yeah, I just wanted to see you. You, are always, you are always welcome in my home, bro. See, now I don't believe you anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you'll have to work that out. <laughs> so, um, a question I have for you guys is, like, in your work, helping people through this, you know, navigating the difficult straits of deconstruction, right? People are beginning to interrogate the assumptions of their spiritual life growing up, and they're beginning to ask important questions about who they are, about who God is, about the way the world is. Um, go down a level deeper for me and help me understand, help folks understand, well, what role does the Enneagram play in that? Like, like I, what's the connection? Well, I think it starts by helping you understand your center of intelligence. Is it a head-based, a heart-based, or a gut-based? Um, because that, I think, is going to inform a lot about how you've approached deconstruction for you know, your, your head types, especially your fives. You've gone along this seemingly uh, almost clinical <laughs> process. Uh, in the mind of examining and testing ideas and tenets for worth. Uh, but if you're type six, that probably hasn't been a, a big factor at all in your deconstruction. Um, it, it's probably been more of you suddenly feeling like you don't belong in your community. And that was the primary onus. But what's funny 
is um, that might have been the animus for a five. But by understanding where our center of intelligence is, it can help us take a step back and look at what might really be happening emotionally and behind our cognition. Or if we're a more emotionally based center of intelligence or person, it can help us understand that, oh, wait, no, there is a cognitive component here. Uh, it's great for kind of setting the stage for how deconstruction began in the first place. And because we are a species whose consciousness is composed of narrative, having some idea of the genesis of a story can help us move forward and see a better future. And of course, because the Enneagram is so dynamic, if we have some sense of what type we are, then we get a picture of what stress does to us. And that can be very illuminating because people can be in deconstruction. They can be in perpetual low-level or high-level conflict with their friends and family because of this deconstruction. And they find their personality is changing in ways that maybe they don't appreciate or they feel tired all the time. They feel like they get angry easily. And understanding that deconstruction itself is creating a set of conditions that are perpetual stressors gives people the freedom to realize, oh, this is part of me coping with a life that is sometimes difficult or not what I wish that it was. So that's what I love about connecting the Enneagram to the process of deconstruction is that ability to let people see more into themselves and understand more about their own experiences. Mm. Yeah, it'd almost be like if you didn't understand that your body needed to eat a certain amount of times a day. And you're like, every day, like around noon, I just start getting cranky and my belly starts hurting. I don't know. It's like, yeah, you got to eat. You're, you're getting hungry. You're going to have for lunch. When you start seeing kind of your psyche's operating system and, and the wounds that have formed your sense of identity and um, your nature of coping in the world. And when you start understanding those things, a lot more of your drives, your fears, the way that you're experiencing deconstruction and how you're feeling alienated or how you're feeling protective of your people or whatever you're, the way that you're experiencing it is, the more that you understand about those, those wounds, those sort of fundamental um, shapes that your psyche has taken on to try to be okay in the world, the, the easier it is to like, oh, have a sandwich, <laughs> you know, like you're, you're, you feel like you're, really angry but there's maybe there's something else going on here than just you don't have to be frustrated at the anger you don't have to like make it a loop on a loop on a loop um you can find some some more core ways if you're a heart person um how and you're and you're experiencing deconstruction in a way that makes you feel emotionally betrayed or whatever maybe this might not actually be about that person it might be about your mom or what you know like uh, it has all these sort of like little secrets and tricks in the Enneagram wisdom and tradition that I found personally helpful and I've seen so many people find helpful for mm -hmm. their own journey regarding deconstruction. Yeah, see, yeah, I mean, this is fantastic. I, um, what I'm hearing you say is that what the Enneagram does is it provides a, uh, a reservoir of self-knowledge that can help people as they begin to wrestle with really important um, um, places of spiritual dissonance where they're trying to make sense of their spirituality that they, they're they able to say, okay, this is how I reflexively see the world or I perceive the world. And they're better able to manage the transitions 
because they're aware that, hey, this is how I reflexively act in these situations. Don't take it too seriously or don't or respond carefully or compassionately or however they have to do it. Yes, I think that was. Yes. Okay. let's close uh, with a. uh, Is that a question? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take an offering and I'll say a closing prayer and uh, we'll send send people out. (laughs) You know, I want to I want to ask you guys this question, though. Like, it seems to me, though, that a lot of people who are new to the Enneagram or have been around the Enneagram a while, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of this is becoming a little bit of a soapbox for me. But what I hear them saying a lot is oh, I'm a seven, or oh, I'm a five, or I'm a two. This explains so much. And there's a lot of enthusiasm, totally understandable, in part because they're saying, oh, now I understand my past. You know, I'm, I'm actually beginning to see patterns. I'm, I'm, this explains a lot, right? Or it explains in this moment why I'm feeling or doing or acting this way. But what I'm always trying to tell people is, you're not a seven. You're not a five. You're, you're not a nine. You are infinitely greater than that. In fact, that is what has been constricting you is identifying yeah. who you are. And now yes. all, all you've done with the Enneagram is take a number. You, you've let go of one thing and you, you've now cathected or attached yourself to a whole new identity, which is as constricting, if not more than the one you were playing around with yeah. before when it was just in the, you know, ethos of not, not the ethos, the, the ether of unknowing self lack of self-knowledge so i'm trying to help people see that it's really about getting over yourself literally (laughs) like getting over these these things is that michael is that what you were referring to earlier did you say mike or michael either one either one of you could have said it (laughs) i think yeah i get really concerned about that um i see people who have left some form of restrictive theology now don't have one and i feel like they lean into the enneagram as their new orthodoxy and in some ways that might be better because it's like not hierarchical or whatever um but the way we approach it our friend annie diamond always calls the enneagram a map like it's just something you can use to navigate the world and it's it's fidelity in describing the world is not absolute or perfect um, so use it where it helps you get over across that river and around that mountain, um, but never mistake the map for the world itself uh, because the world is bigger and more broad um, than any map could ever be. Um, and, and I understand there's like a real psychological impetus when you've kind of taken apart everything you know to be able to put your faith and trust in something. And so I think some of that enthusiasm comes from a, a, a moment's excitement for someone who hasn't had anything to hold tightly to in a long time, suddenly is able to. Um, but I think this, this instinct you've got, I've seen many Enneagram teachers have, of saying, hold on, let's hold this a little more loosely. Let's understand that this can help navigate situations, but you should never limit who you are to one of these numbers, no matter how many prefixes and suffixes you put on it so i'm not just a nine i'm a nine wing one self-preservation you know that's still (laughs) that that, that's that's really nice accoutrements for your your type but not a comprehensive description of your personhood or humanity Hmm. 
and as far as like spiritual work goes, there's kind of a paradox about it to me because um, it's sort of like I think about I was doing a lot of embodiment meditations last year and through the last year. And um, it was interesting as I would as I would pay more attention to my physical body and place my awareness in my feet and place my like place my identity in my feet and then in my through my body and and really play with that sort of like really focus my attention within my body i found through time that my awareness and sense of self began to transcend my physical senses of body if that makes any sense um it became also the space in the room and the context of the body. And so like, I think the Enneagram practiced well, um, as you kind of focus in on the ego, on the wounds of the ego, and you, you shrink down like that and pay attention and become present with it, um, there, is a, there is a risk of down there grabbing on and attaching to it and trying to like find an identity that makes you more important still. It's still more of the same ego game. Um, but I think in it, it's health as, as the wounds, as you become aware of them and you begin to witness the, the patterns and, and kind of learn to let go within that. I think it actually is a, it can be a very, um, as you shrink, you get bigger. It's like, the, that's the paradox for me is you, by tending to the wounds, you can transcend the wounds by being aware of these patterns. You can transcend the patterns. You can be, um, more than that. And the way I see, I think about it, the wound aspect of it quite as, as kind of the center rather than as I am a five, I say, I am a five when I'm talking about the Enneagram just for the sake of conversing mm -hmm. sure. i don't actually identify um as a five as that though that's a real thing to be these are almost to me these are all wounds within god in a way <laughs> it's all um patterns that um that we tell stories with to find identity with and and to try to be okay and um and that's useful to a point, but yeah, you're right. I think it, you can grasp onto it in a way that actually becomes, uh, that exacerbates the problem of the ego. Yeah, because what happens is the ego is a grabber. It's a grasper. And, and uh, it, it hates the idea of not having identity. I mean, it, like, the, you know, the, if we think of yeah. the ego as the locus of identity, right? It's like, oh, I've got to have some label. I've got to have some grasp on situations uh, of who I am and who I'm not and who you are and who you're not. And, you know, so the ego gets very, very anxious when you start to, you know, strip it away of identity and I, or, or of yeah. a sense of narrative that it has to hold on to desperately and i just get anxious when i hear people sort of swapping out uh their self image isn't the right word but there's the way they self-identify now it's like you know i we've just added another layer of ego right which is now the type yeah. right so what is it about your ego that makes you anxious about that ian ah <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> 
Well, okay. So I was actually I was listening to your podcast on mysticism this morning, and this is. And then I started, you know, like because I have a very I'm a four, but I have a really pretty strong five wing. So I immediately went to my bookshelf and started pulling off books and going through Carl <laughs> Rahner and Bauerschmidt and then Schrader, who you were talking about, and then uh, you know all my all my resources. And I was thinking about ego this morning, and um, about literally how for me the journey of of spiritual transformation has been about um it has really been about an education to reality it's been about and i think that's what mysticism is and i i, I use that word cautiously because it's a moving target and people get all antsy or you know you know ask someone what mysticism means and they have no idea how to describe it outside of something they may may sense in their bones maybe but mm-hmm. I do think that what the Enneagram has helped me to do as I bring it together with some of these mystical thinkers is educate me to reality, which means it's, it's helped me to go, this is, uh, this is how the world is. Uh, and, and also, um, this is not who you are. You, does that make sense? In other words, you're, you are not a four and you are, your ego is not the center of this universe. And um, so what I mean by education to reality is it's um, helping me to deal with the way the world is and the way that I am in truth, not in, you know, some strange kind of um, delusional way, which is kind of the way that the ego seems to work a lot of the time. Hmm. Mm. I think that there's like an, a necessary, is it, I guess, is it Richard Rohr that said you got to develop an ego before you can transcend an ego? Maybe a lot of people have said that. I think I heard him say that once though. But um, I think about like Gunger, my last name and my daughters. <clears throat> my daughters have the last name. We've given them my same last name. And I hope at some point that um, they'll be able to transcend their family identity. That, like, my, I remember my grandma always used to be like, you're a gunger, and that, that meant something, you know. Um, and, and she was this spicy Puerto Rican lady, and she had all these ideas about what that meant. Um, you're a gunger. You better behave like it. These are the... the boundaries that that you exist within as a gunger and i think there is some healthy like stage of like yeah i'm a gunger i better fall in line get my stuff together i don't know if we cuss on your podcast so i'm trying to not cuss um (laughs) but the there comes a point where that becomes a limit there becomes a point where like I would like to do this. I feel like I'm growing towards this as an individual, but that doesn't fit the Gunger narrative that I've been handed. At some point, I've got to let go of that if I'm going to keep growing. Sure, that was a healthy thing for a while. I'm a Gunger. I'm in this family. I'm growing. But now it's time to grow past that. And I wonder, what, what do you guys think? Is there, is there some kind of element of that with the ego stories that's like you coming to some sort of self-awareness, some sort of... um awareness of how your patterns continue to follow the wound, follow these 
thoughts and stories that you've been handed. But at some point, if you keep holding on to that, it's going to keep you in a box that um, is very limiting. And and at some once you understand it, though, you're at a better place to know how to transcend it, to know how to let it go. I've got a lot of two qualities and a lot of five qualities, a few three qualities, although the Enneagram would give me room as a nine to have three qualities. But if I, if I hold too tightly to this model, I might disregard or not pay enough attention to real parts of who I am and my experience um, if I let my ego sink into and occupy a box labeled nine. So where nine allows me to transcend my hangups, where, where that, that Enneagram type allows me to connect more deeply with people to be a better friend. Uh, the fact that I know I'm a nine means that I've gone through and made a list of people in my life, uh, and it's a very long list. <laughs> Uh, but I go through every day and I call or text three of them. And that means people hear from me at least, you know, like once a year, which isn't great, but it's much higher than where I was at. You know what I mean? So in that case, the Enneagram type has helped me have a discovery that can make me, even though I care about people, know I should show that. But if I let that freedom I found there erase the parts of me that are two-like or five-like, uh, then the combination of ego and map has once again started to constrain who I am and limit it. And so what's great about combining the Enneagram with something like mysticism is mysticism, if it does anything, is let us understand that all language, all models, and all thoughts are limited in their capacity to describe experience. And that at some point, we have to pay attention to and trust the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com the value of our experiences. Mm. I think that's also helped our friendship. Um, knowing the Enneagram has helped me know, like I said earlier, that I reach out more than normal with Mike, partially because I know that our tendencies as a five and a nine to, to that we could easily just become formal drift. Uh, that would be the easy thing. That would be the natural tendency. So I, knowing that, I can like make an effort to not let that happen, hmm. and to reach out. And I think that's that's been very helpful. And with the nine high-gain antenna, what friends are we most likely to not reach out to? Our five friends. Because we have a sensitivity saying, this is a person that needs their space. So because I care for you, I'll give you the most space possible. And that's how the Enneagram sets up this understanding of the drift. It's not a lack of affection or intimacy or care. It's that by expressing care, distance can be created. And so the Enneagram also tells a five and a nine, hey, if this works as good for both of you as the model says it should, you have to go against your natural inclinations and bridge that gap with intention 
Otherwise, you'll just slowly drift into your separate spaces. Mm-hmm. So um, in your friendship, here's a, here's a question that has been haunting me lately, and partly because I've done a lot of work around you know Carl Jung uh, in the last few years. And, and one of those questions is obviously we, you know, we have blind spots, and one of our great core resources for figuring out what those blind spots are, or we might say things that exist in our shadows— is the the people that we love, right? Uh, they can help us. So one question that has been, I've used with a couple of people, it's a very dangerous question, is what is it you know about me that I don't know about me, but I should? So, Michael, let me ask you this. What doesn't Mike know about Mike that he should? What doesn't he know? Yeah. Like, what do you, what do you wish <laughs> That's that... That's clever. I thought you were going to have us do that with you, but now you've brilliantly... <laughs> asked Michael a question on my behalf. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Well, I mean, here, I mean, I mean, <laughs> you, you guys are an infinite source of wisdom and, and, uh, for each other. So I guess my question is like, Michael, can you tell Mike something about him that you wish he knew about himself, but apparently he does not. <laughs> what do you uh, what do you question. wish he knew i'm gonna need a moment maybe we should switch it up see if he has anything i don't have anything right. on the tip of my tongue with that um, part, part of what i do as a nine when we're in public spaces is when people ask a question i almost universally answer first and it's not because i like my answer more it's because words are easy for me and so I like to give him a few seconds to spool up. So if I can like do a little vamp and then like presenting Michael Gunker, then that's like, I feel like is a good use of my energy. So of course, as soon as you ask the question, uh, because I have exceptional verbal aptitude, I distilled it into a set of points that I can communicate succinctly in a way that will be emotive for audience members. So uh, I've disclosed my strategic goals with the statement that I am about to offer. Uh, Michael, your brilliance as a thinker and as an artist are immediately evident to everyone who encounters not only your work, but you as an individual. And you have this incredible capacity to think in a way that is outside the box, which is why I like hanging out with you so much. We're not going to have to go through the normal small talk script that every person in the world wants to go through every time you see them. We can immediately say, is human civilization viable 45 years from now? And just go, right? So that's a lot of fun. But you already know that you're an outside-the-box thinker, and you already know that you have a particular artistic brilliance. Uh, What I wonder if you know is how powerful it is when you allow fear, hurt, or anger to be displayed in your person because you have such exceptional composure and intellect in those times when you display those human experiences we often unlabel as unpleasant or unwelcome it creates a sense of safety and solidarity and self-acceptance, not only among your friends, I think, but people who consume your public work. Um, maybe the most powerful thing in your entire 
arsenal is the potency that happens when you express your feelings. All right, let's play that in reverse. Um, It's hard to find something that I think Science Mike does not think about. <laughs> I had the same problem. I just assumed the listener wouldn't know you already knew what I just said. <laughs> Slightly performative. I, <laughs> I, if we'll be, uh, let me just quick respond. To, so thank you. Um, but I have... <laughs> I used to get a lot angrier and be a lot more afraid and all those things. So it was more natural. Um, I notice now if I display emotion, how people respond differently. And sometimes I try to make myself show emotion. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. And one of the podcasters I'm like, Working myself up, trying to get real mad. <laughs> oh man! Uh, um, <clears throat> that Mike doesn't know. I think that you um, think that you're larger in the room as far as like pushing other people out than anybody ever thinks that you are <laughs> like when you're talking or you have a comment or a joke or whatever sometimes it feels to me like you think that maybe you've gone too far that you've taken up too much space that you've put people out by being there fully present and i don't think that's ever the case <laughs> i think people always welcome your presence and love your presence as and that's not to say when you when you do speak, that's not to say that it's not you come with these grand, beautiful ideas and your speech and um, humor and whatever. You take up space, but it's space that everybody wants there. Um, and I think sometimes you don't understand how much your space is uh, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. That's a... Uh... Our friend Hillary, who's now a co-host on the Liturgist podcast, people will say things, and then it's quite brilliant. Before she can think of a way to say like something in response, she describes her physical sensations. <laughs> so he says, "With the night, she says, I just feel a feeling of warmth across my chest. And it's like, oh, wow, that's beautiful. And then it's, oh, that's a clever vamp. I'll steal that. So as you said that, I felt a feeling of incredible tension across my chest <laughs> and extreme physical discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I always, every time I talk, feel like I am taking up unnecessary and unwanted space in the room. Mm. So, yeah. Ouch. So... Michael, you were talking earlier about narratives. You've used the word narratives a few times. And, and one of the little mantras I have is that, you know, the Enneagram helps us to figure out who we were before the world told us who we were supposed to be. And, and 
um, this idea that, of course, we construct narratives based on experiences and events in our lives. We string them together. We, we base an identity around them and stuff. And I guess the question for you is, is what's the story as a five, is for you as a five in particular, what's the story that you for a long time told yourself and others about who you are that you have come to realize isn't true? Um, I've come to realize that the need for excellence, the need for knowledge the need to, um, with my mind, feel superior to other people, that doesn't actually fix anything, and that's not actually um, the solution to the problem of feeling not okay. Mm. That doesn't... um, It's grasping at air and... Uh, that tendency of the ego, which is that's the thing that my ego tries to do to feel like I'm okay. I can exist in this world uh, and be okay if I just show that I'm um, not even, it didn't even come across for me as show, but if I can know that I know the truth, if I can, um, because then I, I can feel superior. I can feel, like I'm on the inside of of the real important stuff, mm. and um, by by that, then I have identity with that, and I have by proxy I am important if I can be close to the important stuff. And um, yeah, I've I've seen through that thankfully. So mm. I I recognize occasionally when it actually tends to show up for me now as a physical sensation in my head. Um, did you just say it I shows up feel... as a, it shows up as a physical sensation in my head? I did. Okay. When it, when it shows up, um, that kind of old, that old comfortable pair of pants, uh, <laughs> tries to slip on again where it's like, uh, I can feel part of my brain, um, gravitating towards an idea, towards a something and it it's like wants to take it it wants to like put its claws in it and that is something that caused me so much suffering for 35 years um and so i I can actually start kind of feel it sometimes and i thankfully can recognize it now Mm. it's like oh there that is it there that is again and just let it be and let it go because it usually goes away if i just don't grasp if i just don't follow right. its lead right yeah how about you mike what what what's the story that you you know uh told yourself and others about who you are that you now see as a nine man that's just not true or that is true or what i mean how has that sh- shifted for you oh uh, i have an excess number of dendrites in the synapses of my brain. Uh, Compared to most people, my brain is much more reticent to trim or remove dendrites that aren't effective in creating functional neuro networks. Um, 
And boy, that's a lot of medical terms right up front. What that means is as an adult, I've recently been given a medical diagnosis that I am autistic. And many of the things about myself that I came in touch with as a type 9 are actually medical symptoms of an adult with autism spectrum disorder. Um, The fact that I get overstimulated and then have to go into an extreme state of uh, rest and detachment is because my brain has inordinate difficulty processing sensory information compared to most people. And that's exacerbated by the fact that a few years ago I fell off a motorcycle and made my brain bleed not once but twice at the same time. And as a young man living in the southeastern United States in evangelical community, I understood that there was a rigid set of expectations about who I was supposed to be, about how I was supposed to lead others, the amount of charisma required to navigate the world. And I spent, oh gosh, 19 years intentionally engineering a persona and a personality to interface with the world and hid in great shame those things about myself which I was not able to change through cognitive behavioral therapy and my own hacked-together version of neural programming. Um, And oddly enough, the structure of the Enneagram and the post-religious community I found myself in that talks about things like ableism has led me to become more accepting and gracious of my entire self. So yes, I can be very funny and very engaging on stage. But yes, it's also okay for me to need eight hours in my office in total silence uh, following an experience like that to get back to some degree of normal. Um, That it's okay that... Uh, I am far more dependent on routines and rituals than most people are. Um, and the, the gateway to that was talking about how nines narcotize themselves. Um, and I just thought all my loops and routines were uh, narcotizing rituals. And, and in the Enneagram language, they are. But in a medical understanding of autism spectrum disorder, uh, those are the ways that I cope with an inability to form neural networks. And so the Enneagram has been uniquely useful for me prior to this diagnosis in finding ways of pushing back on the social scripts I was handed as a child and as a young adult and understand that who I am, who I really am when I'm not pretending is okay and is fine and is useful and desired in the world. Hmm. So, guys, as we come up toward a wrap-up, tell me about some spiritual practices that fives and nines can do to raise to conscious awareness those things that are happening underneath the surface of their lives that may be pulling the strings and uh, to live as more complete and, you know, self-informed human beings in the world. 
Um, for me, meditation has been by far the most powerful spiritual practice of my life. Um, and in saying that, I, I actually, as I look back at the other spiritual practices that I engaged for years, the way I see it now and interpret it now, it was the meditative quality of those other practices that were the power anyway. <laughs> so when I think about like, as a worship leader for so many years and those times of worship um, that felt so formative and were so formative for me and so freeing. And now looking back, I see like it was, it's meditation. Like you're singing and you're being present in the moment. Your song becomes breath. You're focused on that becomes like your point of attention. Um, it can be embodiment if you're like I was in a charismatic world and it can be like this uh, being present with your body and, and you're in this moment, you're focused or even scripture reading or whatever it was, you're, you're putting your attention, you're getting away from all the, these other stories about tomorrow and yesterday and, um, and you're being present right here in this moment, listening to God, listening to your body, whatever, whatever, um, metaphors, stories you tell about what you're doing. Um, it is this presence. It is this purposeful um, be here now sort of situation. And mm. and that for me in meditation has been refined. Um, the, the, the value in all these other practices through my life uh, kind of are, are really clarified and put and come to a head in the practice of just sitting <laughs> um, and being. And that to me is like what was so powerful about all these other things. And so just going to it directly in meditation, I began to do that in like 2010, I think, um, 2009, 2010. And that just has become, that has been the most important spiritual practice mm. for me. Hey, Mike, how about you? I think for nines, we have to be careful with spiritual practices because we might listen to the other types describe their experiences and mistakenly believe ourselves to be gurus. <laughs> Here's what I mean. Uh, when people meditate and they say, clear your mind, and then you listen to everybody else talk about how hard it was to clear your mind, you're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's the easiest thing in the world. You want me to sit and keep my mind clear for an hour? Start the timer. I got this. And I promise you, I won't have a single thought or feeling for the entire hour. Like, no problem. I've seen him just veg out in a van before. I'm like, what are you, are you meditating? Like we used to, when we went on tour together, just staring at the front seat. What, you've just been sitting there for like two hours. Are you meditating? So, nope. <laughs> just, just sitting here. <laughs> so then a meditation teacher may be like, oh, wow, you're, you're gifted at this. No, I'm disengaged. No. Yeah. I'm not practicing intent and awareness. I've taken my brain's transmission, put it in neutral, and let the engine idle. Like, it's, it's saving gas, but, sure, yeah. but I'm not achieving some state of oneness. I'm achieving a state of none-ness. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so w what I found most helpful as a nine in spiritual practice is things that force me to engage. So maybe like I couldn't learn to do a sitting meditation until I learned to do a walking meditation. 
And I knew a walking meditation was not working if at the end of the meditation I didn't remember the walk. Then I just disengaged in nature. Taking the discipline in a walking meditation of actually paying attention to every step, being engaged with every step, with every sound, with every stone, with every plant, bush, flower that I pass, every bird that sings along the way. Practicing engagement then taught me how to engage silence. Now, luckily for a nine, learning to engage silence, I think, is easier than most types learning to silence their minds in the first place. So we do get a little unfair leg up in, in, in meditation, but that comes at a cost. I've learned that the most profound moments of growth we have in our lives exist in community, exist in those times when in conversation we go beyond the superficial level to talking about how we think and feel and act. And it's very easy for nines to listen attentively with and empathize with what other people have to say. It is much more difficult for us to engage and describe our own experiences honestly. And, and this is huge, learning to accept praise or compliments that other people offer us. That, that tends to really roll off. You want to talk about rocking the boat for me? Then talk about how you genuinely accept and affirm me. That is a very difficult message for a nine to receive. Learning, honestly, and this sounds strange, learning to engage and be aware of our anger for a nine is a spiritual discipline. Therapy is a spiritual discipline for a nine because you can never engage the world until you can learn to engage and acknowledge the well of anger in the bottom of your belly. You know, uh, when I found out I was a type nine or suspected it, I really got upset because it talked about this, this unacknowledged anger at nines. And I was like, but that's not me. I'm literally never angry and I never experience any anger. So I can't be a type nine. I mean, everything else looks fine other than this, this basis of anger in the type. Um, and that's why I think the most critical spiritual discipline for a nine is learning to acknowledge, to release, and to process anger so that we can learn to express it in ways that is not only healthy to ourselves, but healthy to our communities and to society. At large. Mm, that's really, really good. Hey, Ian, um, let me ask you a couple of questions. How does being, how does being a type four impact your work as a spiritual director? Mm. Well, I'm pretty, I mean, I think it brings me into that space with a natural empathy for other people. I mean, essentially, as opinionated as I can be, I'm actually a very non-judgmental person. You could just pretty much tell me anything, and um, I can just receive it and be with it. This just doesn't really... I don't feel, I, I think my first reflex is to say, yeah, life is hard. Life's hard. I get it. You know, I know why you may be thinking or feeling or acting in that way. I may not agree with it. I may not, but I don't have any judgment in the moment toward uh, a person for the way that they are or how they've come to be the person they are. So I come in with a lot of feeling, a lot of attunement to another person's feelings and with a great deal of empathy for the human condition. 
I think, you know. I I really appreciated that when when I first met you. I was like in the the final days of my spiral of uh faith and talking to you who I met sort of within the industry, the Christian industry and in Nashville as a uh it was such a breath of fresh air to talk to somebody who didn't look down on me for the questions I was asking or through the fears and anxieties I was experiencing. Like you just were cool. Yeah. It was just, it was so freeing for me to be able to talk to you and Mm. not worry about how you're going to respond. So I've experienced it firsthand what you're talking about. Mm. Appreciate it. How have you felt impacted by the ever increasing role the Enneagram plays in your public work? Yeah. Wow. Um, well, that's a great question because I, it, it has actually thrown me into a little bit of a crisis. I think, you know, um, uh, you know, people always say to me, you know, Oh, are you the Enneagram guy? Are you, are you, you're the Enneagram guy. And I'm like, no, I'm not the Enneagram guy. <laughs> That's like the 10th type or something. The Enneagram guy, you know. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it's given me a lot of pause, actually. I, um, you know, you know, like in life you think, okay, well, if I get successful at something, it's going to solve problems, right? But it actually doesn't solve problems. It just, you, you, it just creates different problems, new problems, right? And so you're like, well. Oh, yeah. All right. I used to have these problems. Now I have these problems. Now, which of those problems do you prefer? Which set of problems do you prefer? Well, I prefer, I mean, I guess in, in many ways, I prefer the problems I have now over the ones I used to have, but they're still problems, right? And, um, it, you know, I think the more I dive in, I'll just be completely you know, frank. I mean, the more I dive into the Enneagram, the more I realize how limited it is. Um, how uh, inadequate it is to the task of understanding the human person and of the spiritual journey. Now, it's it's incredibly useful, but as you, you know, and I think that's probably true of lots of models and systems, right? You 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 come in with this sort of fresh kind of oh, this is it! I've really found something great, and and you know, I you know, the more I get into it, the more I realize it's just a gateway into a much larger conversation about things we have no idea about. Um, it's a very primitive vocabulary, but a necessary one to talk about gigantic ideas in life. So for me, you know, it, it, it's had a lot of impact on family and friends and all kinds of stuff that, you know, uh, good and bad. And, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's really plunged me into a lot of thoughts and feelings and ideas that, you know, are unintended consequences of something going well, you know, and, and, um, it's made me hungrier to know what's next beyond the Enneagram. I don't want to be Enneagram guy. You know what I mean? Like that, that, right. if I don't yes. want, I, I don't want someone to like, you know, on my grave marker to have it say four. I really, <laughs> you know, that's, that's now not how I want this to end, you know? So, you know, I do. I, I told you right when we started recording that our most popular episode is the episode we did with you on the Enneagram. Millions of downloads and it passed episodes where we talked about structural and individual racism or marriage equality or 
like really weighty important topics not to say the enneagram personality is not important um but it it's a real there's so much excitement and enthusiasm in the enneagram there's almost a danger in engaging it as a public figure lest you just become kind of publicly typecasted as an enneagram person or enneagram teacher um which is is complex because it is so useful um, and then, like you say, you know, changing problems for one for another. I was driving into Hollywood the other night with some friends, sitting in a car at night, which is not a highly visible situation. And a car pulled off from a side street, and someone leaned their body out of the window and yelled, Woohoo, science bike! And then everyone in the car waved at us. And it was like, at first, like kind of funny. And then it was like, wait, how'd they see me in the backseat of a Prius? And how, like, part of the reason your life changes is people love the Enneagram so much and you get associated with it. But that's like, that's like a funny change. But then you look at the scale of the feedback you receive with millions of downloads. And that costs you something you liked about the work in the first place just because it's so big. And so I thought about, like, you with topology. Uh <clears throat> You've got some really amazing writing out there pre-Enneagram and like how much mind share does that have in the world, especially with millennials, some, you know, compared to your work with the Enneagram and that it, it really is like, um, there's success that's come with it. But uh, I also just knowing you had like a concern, like, will people over identify Ian with the Enneagram because he's got so much more to say about life and living and spirituality about God uh, than this particular system. Yeah. Well, in fact, the other day someone said to me, what are you reading? I said, I haven't read anything outside the realm of psychology and the Enneagram in about two years. And I was like, really? Oh man. I mean, you know, I mean, I've read some other things, but you know, my days when I, and, and this is part of what I was saying earlier, right? Like, it's given me great pause in my life to say, well, you know, what really matters and what, what do I most deeply care about? And, um, you know, what I deeply care about is trying to figure out what are we doing here? Like, what, what is the yeah. meaning of this thing called life? And what is the meaning of our suffering? And what is the meaning of love? And, and how are we to be in this world? And we have but just a fleeting moment. We're like fireflies, for crying out loud. You know, we get a couple of little bleeps, and that's it. And so I don't want to sound angsty about it. I don't feel that way. I just want to make sure that I don't get sort of caught up in sort of Johnny OneNote and because I don't think I think the Enneagram isn't to me, it's not an end into itself. I think it's I think it's actually just a hey, let's get into like if you imagine like you know there's a banquet room right and and there's lots of different chairs at the table, and uh, you know I do believe everyone gets a seat at the table, but there's a lot of doorways into that room, and you could go through that room and through a conversation on psychology or spirituality or about art or about you know, whatever your thing is, there are lots of different doorways in. I just don't want to be the guy who comes in through the same door because I have an interest in lots of different doors into that room and into that conversation. I don't want to be limited into one. So that's uh, that's been a cause of a lot of long walks, you know. Is that is that kind of a four thing? Like, I, I mean, I know there's a, there's a public, um, you know, coming from music, 
there's the uh, the one hit wonder fear always. There's like the the band that's known for a song, and you hear as a musician, I've at first it was oh you're the friend of God guy, and then the beautiful things guy, and then the liturgist podcast, whatever the thing is, I've I've shared in the past of like but I'm not just that. I don't even like that song that much, the friend of God song, whatever it was. Um, I don't know. Now that I've experienced enough, like, uh, loss, <laughs> I've personally have like, I'm grateful for whatever is working right now. <laughs> um, I'm not saying this to like preach at you, but I hope that, you can feel encouraged that I don't think you, you're not a one note guy. It's not the only thing, you know, you have lots of great work. You've always had great work and I think you always will have great work. Um, I hope you don't worry too much about it. I think this is what people are talking about right now. It's a helpful tool for them. Um, you're not a one dimensional person, so your work is not going to be one dimensional, <laughs> but if this is what people are knowing, seeing you right now for personally, I'm grateful for anything that people are paying attention to right now with the world being so loud. And mm. uh, so I don't know. And all you typology listeners, if you want to just like enjoy some profoundly great writing, head over to amazon.com and look for Jesus, my father, the CIA and mm. me by Ian Cron. It's a truly incredible book. And critics agree with me on that. Well, Mike, that's kind of you. Thank you. And thanks to you both, man. I'm so glad you're on the show today and we had a chance to just to catch up and you know i you know i i give people a lot of space i know fives and nines man you know you're always welcome in my home together or yeah, right <laughs> together or apart <laughs> you can come over. don't believe them hey mike you can come to my house and dissociate anytime you want okay if you if you, you want to do that and 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 you know I'm an amazing house guest nobody ever knows I'm there (laughs) (laughs) well listen was Mike here is he here presently (laughs) hey listen love to you both and typology listeners remember the words the great Oscar Wilde be yourself everybody else is already taken (laughs) 